All right, so kids are dismissed. Uh, the rest of us, you guys can jump into uh, the Gospel of Luke. And uh, last Sunday, I talked about Jesus making a, a whip of cords and chasing people out of the temple and flipping tables. And uh, you might be like, that, that's not the Jesus that I'm used to. Uh, but think about the fact that, I mean, we were just singing kind of Christmassy songs about the Son of God, uh, God Himself coming to earth, dwelling among us, uh, Jesus being the perfect image of the Father, uh, the glory of the Father revealed, the heart of God uh, being demonstrated to humanity, that God came to visit and dwell in and amongst His creation. And that's like a, a pretty big deal, right? Like when we think about that. And, and when we read last week, and, and this week, we're going to look at Jesus teaching and preaching in the temple of God. We're going to see this idea of, of God himself visiting his people in his temple, and they're not at that time really actually going to be too excited about what he has to say or what he does, and they're, they're going to ask Jesus essentially today, like, Who, what are you doing here? Who said you were invited? Is essentially what they're saying to God himself as he visits his temple. And so, uh, so join with me in uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 1. Uh, so one day, so this is in the very week after Jesus had just flipped tables, uh, one day Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, right? And so he's flipped tables, and now he's like set up his own little teaching space in the courtyard, likely is where it's talking about, of the temple of the people of Israel uh, during this festival of Passover. And, and so Jesus is teaching, and now like some of the, the religious leaders, they build up the courage to find out, like, like Jesus, who said you can do this here? Like, who gave you permission? Uh, I don't remember you asking us, is essentially what they're saying. And so the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. All right, like, they're like, who told you you could come to our temple and flip uh, tables and chase people out with a whip, right? Who told you you could do that? Or who told you that you could come here and teach and preach the gospel in our temple? Like, because you're not a priest in their perspective. Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi, right? He's not a high priest. He's not one of the elders. He's not a scribe. And they're like... Who gave you permission, Jesus, to be here? And it's interesting to think about and ponder, like, when Jesus intrudes our lives, like, do we kind of be like, whoa, 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 Jesus, I didn't didn't give you permission to, like, come into my life and, and tell me what to do? Like, who are you to tell me what to do, right? And so they've been disrupted by his chasing people with a whip. They've been disturbed by his teaching. And now they're, they're saying, like, who gave you the right to come in here and do this? All right? Like, it's, it's a valid question. And so in verse 3, Jesus, uh, in an amusing way, he says, he answered them, I'll also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man. And so in this moment, Jesus does not answer their question. Okay? And, and he actually, to expose a degree of their insincerity of their question, to expose a degree of their hypocrisy, 
He just asks them a question. He's like, so tell me, John the Baptist, was his baptism, was his message, was his proclamation from heaven, was it God-ordained, was God the one who sent him, or was it just humanity? Is it just like he had just this good idea to, I'm going to just start a ministry on my own out in the wilderness and start dunking people in the Jordan River? He says, what, which was it? And so Jesus asks them this question to kind of expose the fact that, like, they're not very sincere uh, in their asking. And so verse 5, they now have a conversation. Like, they'd all just, like, built up courage. They're like, let's go ask Jesus. Let's, we can't just let him come in here and do this. Like, we need to go, like, oppose Jesus right now. He's been flipping tables, and now he's teaching in our courtyard. Like, and they're like, all right, let's go talk to him. And then, like, Jesus comes back with a question. They're like... Just a minute. And they're like, they go back and like talk amongst themselves. And they, they discussed it with one another, saying, all right, so we have two options. It was a multiple choice question from, from heaven or from man. And if we say from heaven, he'll then ask, why did you not believe him? Right? Why did you not believe John the Baptist if, in fact, his ministry was God-ordained? Right? Like, if you don't like the message that he proclaimed, but it's from heaven, like, do you have the right to ignore that message? And then they say, okay, but if we say from man, then the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so what's interesting is, right, these uh, religious leaders, they're afraid of the people. They're afraid, like this huge crowd has come to the city of Jerusalem now, and they're afraid, they're like, okay, if we say that John was merely uh, man-ordained ministry, uh, they're going to accuse us uh, because they all believe that he's a prophet, all right? And so they're afraid of the crowds. And I just want to point out that uh, when we choose to adhere to the truth, when we choose to proclaim the truth, at times it will be in opposition to what the crowds would like us to, to believe, would like us to say. And, and the, the followers of Jesus, Jesus himself, uh, Stephen, Peter, John, P, uh, Paul, many others do, as a result of proclaiming the truth, experience harsh treatment and beatings and, and being stoned and left for dead and, and literally being killed because of the, the message that they declare. Right? They're willing to speak the truth even though they realize it may cost them comfort. Another thing to consider here is that the testimony of the people is not sufficient to identify what is truth. All right, in this case, the crowds were right. John the Baptist was sent by God to declare a message to prepare the way of the Lord. They were right the other week when Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey and they're singing Hosanna, Son of David, in the highest, right? They're identifying him as the Messiah and King. Sometimes the crowd is right, but within a week, the, the crowd is going to say, we don't want this Jesus, give us Barabbas, give us this rebel. They're going to say, crucify this Jesus. We have no king except Caesar, Right? That the crowds are not a sufficient way to identify truth. And likewise, even for us, uh, it's not sufficient to simply go along with the crowd, although that is the path of least resistance, although that's the easy thing to do. Uh, because the crowd, they're not always interested in finding the truth. 
All right, these religious leaders even were not necessarily interested in finding the truth. Most people are not on a truth quest. Most people are on a happiness quest. They're just trying to, to live life in such a way that they can do the things that they like to do, that they could please themselves in whatever way they'd want. That's what most people are doing, right? And when the evidence is placed before us, we'd rather just ignore the evidence that would confront our current life. And in fact, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul's writing this to Timothy, and, and Paul's writing this, yes, to Timothy, but he's speaking about the last days. And so this passage is actually more relevant to us than it was to Timothy at the time. Because we are closer, or in, the end days when Timothy wasn't, okay? Uh, and so Paul writes this to Timothy. Let's see, oh, I lost my spot here. Here we go. Here we go. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And this is what will make it difficult. Verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And Paul's advice is avoid such people. And so what's tricky about going with the crowd, especially living in a generation as we do, people are going to, in general, love self, love money, love pleasure rather than loving God. And so we can't simply go with what the crowd would say. That's not a sufficient way to identify the truth. And so, right, the religious leaders are, are kind of caught up in this, this uh, trap, right? They don't know how to respond to Jesus, and they're afraid of the crowd. And so verse 7, back to Luke, they answered Jesus that they did not know where it came from. They're like, you know what, uh, how about, I'm just going to leave this question blank rather than get it wrong uh, by making a wrong choice. Uh, and so they said, we don't know. And Jesus, he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to answer you either, which is kind of amusing. But I want to point out, Jesus has actually answered this question before. All right, Jesus does have an answer to this question. Like, like, think about, like, Jesus gave them kind of two multiple-choice answers that, that uh, John's baptism was either from heaven or from man, and thinking about, like, okay, was Jesus reflecting about his own ministry, his own life, his own authority? It was likewise those same two possible answers that he was considering. Was his ministry, was what he came to do, God-ordained or man-originated? And Jesus has an answer to that question. And some might be like, well... You know, Jesus didn't answer because he never really believed that he was God, but that's uh, quite ignorant of what Jesus did say and do in his earthly ministry. Jesus knew the answer to this question, okay? And so one of the places we can find this is in actually uh, John's Gospel, John chapter 5, and he actually starts with the same place, which is with John the Baptist, which is not the one who wrote John's Gospel, all right, just so you're aware. Uh, and so when Jesus was asked about his authority before, this is what he said. He says, there's four 
people or things that testify to the authority that he's been given. And one is John the Baptist. In John 5.32, he says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He says, you, speaking once again to religious leaders, you sent to John, right? You sent people to investigate about his ministry and what he was proclaiming. You sent to John, and he bore witness to the truth. He has borne witness to the truth, right? That John's ministry, right, he identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. That John was this forerunner to Jesus' ministry. He was one witness to what Jesus came to do, okay? And so Jesus is like, hey, if you believe this witness, that's, that's one. Another one is the miraculous works that Jesus did. In verse 36, he says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And so Jesus is saying, like, listen, if you don't believe John the Baptist, believe the ministry and the works that Jesus was doing on the earth, in which he was going about healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, right? Jesus had a God-ordained ministry and the types of miraculous things that he was doing. That's another line of evidence that we could look at about his authority. Another witness is the Father himself. Jesus says in verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. And think about when Jesus was baptized and the Father speaks and says, behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And in another instance, when God audibly spoke, he said, listen to him. All right, that God the Father himself testified of the ministry that Jesus had and the authority with which he was sent. But what's cool is there's actually another line of testimony, and that is in verse 39, when he's talking once again to religious leaders, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so the fourth testimony about Jesus and his ministry is the scriptures themselves that were written hundreds and thousands of years before his birth, before his earthly ministry took place. And so if he was somehow this fraud, this hoax, it would be awfully difficult to coordinate a, a whole line of evidence that's written about you prior to your birth. That's a difficult conspiracy to coordinate, right? And so Jesus has answered this question before. He believed he was in fact sent by God from heaven with the authority of the Father to come to the earth to be able to heal the sick, raise the dead, forgive sins, right? To liberate those who were oppressed of the enemy. And after his resurrection, he made it even clearer. And this goes back to what George was sharing this morning. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said to his disciples, after he'd hung out with them for 40 days and proved to them that he was, in fact, the risen Christ, right? He says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven has been given to Christ. All right, like he knows his answer to this question. All authority has been given to me, and then he sends us. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so not only was Jesus' ministry ordained by God, but the mission for which he has sent his followers into the earth is also sent with that same authority, right? That God sends you now as a light to this world. God is with you as he sends you out into this world, right? Jesus had authority and he sends you out with authority. But what's interesting is Jesus doesn't merely ask the question, okay, was John's baptism right from heaven or from man? Jesus actually ends up asking some more questions in this exchange with these religious leaders. And in Matthew's account, Matthew's gospel, we get like an extended edition, a cut scene that wasn't found in Luke's gospel. All right? And he, he gives us this additional parable. All right? Uh, in Matthew 21, verse 28, he asks another question. What do you think? Here's a parable. A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. Right? So a father makes a request, a command to his son. All right? And the son answered, I, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And then the father, he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. And Jesus now asks, which of the two, which of the two sons did the will of his father? All right, so one said he would go and didn't, and the first said he would not go, but chose to obey the voice of his father. And so the Jews, they answered, right, Jesus, the, the first son, and he said, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. All right, the, the people who would appear to have made a proclamation uh, with their life, like, no, I'm not going to obey God. I'm going to live a life in rebellion against Him. They're the ones that have changed their minds and chosen to enter God's kingdom. Well, some of the religious leaders, not all of them, some of them have declared that they're obeying God and His commands when, in fact, they're refusing to obey Him. They're refusing to enter His kingdom when it's offered to them. And so verse 32, Jesus says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. And so those who are unrighteous um, admittedly right, acknowledge their own failings, their own struggles, and their need for God's mercy and forgiveness. They receive a baptism of repentance from sin. Right? But those who believed that they were righteous in their own merit refused to accept and enter the kingdom that God was offering them. And what's really crazy about this is even after they saw it, even after they saw additional evidence provided to them, they still did not believe. Right? They chose to hold on to what they were comfortable with, right? their identity where they could have their own pride and their own ego resting in their own good works. Right? That there was opportunity for them to change their mind, and they didn't. But what Jesus is suggesting is, hey, you don't have to commit to living your life in rebellion against God. You can change your mind at any moment. And in fact, he encourages us to do that very thing. That we can change our mind at any moment and, and believe. Right? Change your mind and believe is the same kind of language as repent 
and believe. Repent literally means to change your mind. This is the same way that Peter proclaimed the gospel after the day of Pentecost. Repent, turn, change your mind, and believe in the one that God sent. And Jesus, I want to point out, is okay with us changing our minds. We don't have to, like just because we may have spent decades in rebellion against God, living life our, our own way, doesn't mean we have to continue that way. He's thrilled at the prospect of us changing our minds and coming to him, and he offers us grace in those times of need. And so, Joe, I'm going to skip that Ezekiel verse, but in uh, verse 31, he says, right, which of the two did the will of his father? And so Jesus identifies that there's a difference between saying and, and doing the will of our father. There's a difference between saying one thing and and doing another, right? Uh, Jesus had previously quoted from Isaiah saying that there was a people who, who uh, worshipped God, who praised God with their lips while simultaneously their hearts were far from him. All right, it's possible to say things while not actually obeying God in the same instance. All right, or when we come and believe and follow Jesus in John 14, 15, Jesus says that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. All right, that we don't simply uh, preach a gospel only of forgiveness, but we preach a gospel that because of his forgiveness, that we would go out and, and by his grace and strength, live a life where we become more and more like him in practice and not just in position before him that we're the righteousness of God in Christ. Or in Matthew 28, 20, I'd already read this, where because Jesus sends us out to make disciples, right, he teaches, we are to teach them to observe all that he's commanded, right? And that he is with us to the end of the age. Okay, that, that we should not merely proclaim, we should not merely sing, right? But we should, in the strength that God gives us, live a life where we're aiming to please him, where we practice righteousness and sometimes stumble, right? And that's what Jesus is saying when he, when he talks about those two sons. But back to Luke's, version, he and Matthew and Mark then have this next parable. Jesus then gives another parable in uh, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable about a man who planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants. He leased the land out to farmers. And he went into another country for a long while. And so there's, he's saying, okay, here's another story. Someone owns a vineyard he plants it, and then he lends it to someone who's going to manage it while he's gone. And in Matthew's account, we get even more detail, and I like this one because this landowner is far more involved than we'd first suspect. He says, here another parable, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And so this master himself has invested in this land, purchased this land, cared for this land, planted the crop, right? Set up a fence and perimeter, uh, has dug a wine press and has built a tower. And then after he's done all of the work, he's like, hey, can you guys just watch these grapes grow? Right? Is essentially what he's asking. Like, I've already planted it all. I've already done all of this work. I just need you to tend it while I'm gone. And this is, as Jesus said in the previous parable, a reference to God's kingdom, but it's also in reference to the creation that God has made and the lives that he has given us. 
right? In, in Genesis 2, we actually see the same exact type of analogy where God was the one who formed the man of the dust and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life. And God is the one who planted a garden in Eden. And he is the one who put the man that he had formed there. And he is the one who made every tree to spring up from the ground. And the Lord God is the one who had placed man in that garden to keep it and work it. Right? So God does all of the difficult work of creating life, creating the universe, right? Doing all of these things, planting the seeds. And then he puts man, who he also is the one who gave life to, and he puts him in the garden to tend it and keep it. Right? That the, the point is that all of creation is the Lord's, it's not ours. That our very lives do not belong to us. God is the one who gave us breath and everything. And so back to Jesus' parable in verse 10. It says, when the time came, the owner of this vineyard sent servants to the tenants. All right? that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That somehow as a result of living in this vineyard and caring for these vines, they ended up believing that it was theirs. That as a result of it being the space in which they lived and cared for, they were like, no, 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 I think this harvest is ours. We earned this. And they chose to not give any of the crop to the one who planted it and purchased and cared for and hired them. All right? And then verse 11, and he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And so now beyond just beating someone, they're also shamefully treating them. They're escalating in their maltreatment of the ones that are sent by the master. And then verse 12, he sent a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. All right, so it's like they're just like, well, you know, we've wounded this guy. Let's just throw him out and let him die outside of our vineyard. Right, that they're, they're planning, like they left him for dead. So verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And this is so interesting that Jesus is telling this story within the week of his own death. All right? Suggesting like, hey, God is now sending his son to you to give you opportunity. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then Jesus asks this question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them, these wicked tenants? And so what's interesting is, like I said, within a week, they treat Jesus in that very way. They take him out of the city, have him crucified, and put him to death. The son that the father had sent to them, right? That, that this, this is what they, they do in that same week. And it's just like so ironic that they do, in fact, kill the son. And, and what's interesting is in their motive, they're like, hey, we're acting as though our lives in this land and this kingdom and this creation is ours. But if we can kill the son, it will be ours. If we can destroy the heir, the inheritance will in fact belong to us. Right? And so they, they view that as a result of essentially killing 
God, the one that's sent to them, they'll be able to have the life that they want. And so Jesus asked, asked the question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do in this story? And in Matthew's account, we actually hear a response from the crowd, the religious leaders. It sounds like they're all there. Matthew 21, 41, they said to him, and this is their own judgment of this story, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And what's interesting is when they thought this was just a parable and it wasn't about them, they were willing to right, proclaim justice and judgment against the people in the story that were so ridiculously abusing the people that were sent, right, who had authority and right to be there. And this is similar, I think, to the story about David and Nathan when Nathan had visited his friend, King David, after, right, having an affair with Bathsheba and getting her pregnant and murdering her spouse. And, and Nathan tells this story. And when David doesn't see himself in the story, he's able to rightly discern what would be just, saying this man ought to die. When Nathan's like, David, this, this is about you. You're the man. Right? The, the same thing. The crowd is able to be like, man, I can't believe these tenants would do this, that they would mistreat the owner, that they would abuse and, and beat and kill right, his servants and his son, like, they, they deserve a death, right, a, a miserable death. And so in verse 16, back in Luke's gospel, Jesus says this, right, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. But there's more clarity that we get from Matthew in verse 43. Sorry for the jumping back and forth. He says, therefore, he's now explaining what this parable is about. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people, a people producing its fruits. And so Jesus gets to the point of the story. This isn't just about someone who owns a vineyard and a little, a little parable. This is about God's kingdom and that he's entrusted these people to care for it. And it did not belong to them. They were stewards of what belonged to the Lord and that they mistreated repeatedly the people that God would send to them. And, and Jesus says believing that he has authority to do so, that God will take the kingdom away from them and give it to those who will produce its fruits. Those who are fruitful as members of the kingdom. Those who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so in Jesus' question, one might think like, okay, what authority did the tenants in this vineyard have to mistreat the servants that were sent to them, to to mistreat the son that was sent to them. They had no right. It was not their land for them to keep for their, their, themselves. Right? That they had no authority. And this is, I think, what Jesus is getting to back to the original question. Jesus, by what authority or whose authority do you do the things you're doing here? Who sent you, Jesus? And he's saying, listen, like, you don't have authority here. This isn't your temple. This is God's space. This is God's creation. This is God's kingdom that I proclaim to you. That Jesus had accurate authority to speak in judgment of those who were in the temple and flip their tables and send them out. That Jesus had authority to teach and preach the gospel of the kingdom. He had authority to declare God's desire for people to do his will rather than just speaking shallow words. 
Jesus had the authority to invite them to turn and live. And Jesus had the authority to warn them that the kingdom of God was about to be taken from them and given to those who would receive it. And when I read these stories, I think about the history of the people of Israel and humanity in general, that as we're liberated right from the land of Egypt, within a couple of months of God miraculously rescuing slaves, they're already worshiping a golden idol. Or in the book of Judges, that when they come into the land, they generationally seem to fall into the habit of worshiping these false gods. And then as their lives get difficult, they're like, God, where are you? And God raises up a deliverer to rescue them. But then when life gets easy, they fall back into the cycle of worshiping false gods. Or in the books of the kings, when we read about uh, generation after generation of wicked king that's rebelling against God and building and raising up Asherah poles and serving Baal or Molech and all of these false gods and the whole people of Israel falling in line after them. Right? But then once in a while, a, a godly king would come up and tear down those false idols. Right? But there's just this cycle of rebellion against God. There's this mistreating of his prophets, and eventually it leads them into exile and the destruction of their temple. But what's interesting is even with this repeated pattern of rebellion, that God keeps sending messengers. That God keeps giving them hope to turn and repent. And Jesus even identified this in Luke 13. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Right? Jesus is like, listen, like God has repeatedly invited you back into relationship with himself and you're killing his messengers. And so back to verse 16, when Jesus says that the owner of the vineyard will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others that when they heard this, they were like, no, surely not. Like, this can't be the case. God's not going to take his kingdom away. Like, God's not going to remove us from his kingdom. But Jesus doesn't shy away. Jesus leans in in verse 17. He looked directly at them and asks them another question. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Right? That when those who heard his story finally realized he was talking about them, they're like, no, 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 surely not. Jesus, like, that can't happen to us. And Jesus is like, I'm, I'm talking about you guys. He's like, you know, he didn't shy away and say, like, no, 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 you guys are great. I'm talking about other people, right? Like, like no, 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 Jesus looks right at them and says, guys, like, it's you. Like, you're in the very generation. You don't know the time of the visitation of God coming to you to offer forgiveness and freedom from sin and you're going to kill the very one that God sends right like you don't know and he says what is what is this scripture about then and he quotes to them from the old testament right about that the builders reject a stone and that very stone becomes the chief cornerstone in verse 18 he says everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him and I want to point out that Jesus is this chief cornerstone. That the religious leaders in that moment did not recognize what God was doing, what God's plan was, what his will was for his people, for humanity. 
and they reject the very one that God is sending, right? The, th- the thing that they cast aside as useless and meaningless ends up being the very thing, the very cornerstone, the foundation upon which God builds and establishes his whole kingdom. And it rests on Jesus. It all rests on this issue of Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. And to reject this cornerstone is to fail on all accounts. Any attempt to build a life apart from him will be empty, vain, and fruitless. An attempt to be good on our own merit will eventually crumble if, it's, if we don't find our righteousness in Jesus, the chief cornerstone. If we merely hear his words and do not obey it, We will be building our houses on sinking sand. That Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 24. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Right? Our lives must be built upon Jesus. Jesus said this in John 15, 4. He says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That if we reject the Jesus, the Messiah that God sent to us, we would be like a branch separated from the vine, that we would be momentarily green but eternally fruitless. Right? We would wither and die apart from this Jesus. And so Jesus, I want to tell you, right, has authority. Right? Jesus is the one whom God sent to redeem and deliver humanity. Right? Jesus is the one that has authority to identify when our hearts are wrong, to declare the truth of God as it is. Right? He has the authority to invite us to repentance and experience freedom in Him. Right? He's able to declare whether or not we are a son that is doing the will of our Father. Right? He's able to identify and warn when we are in rebellion against Him and killing the very ones that he sends to us. And he's able to say, right, when you look at this cornerstone, are you going to reject or receive this gift that God's given you? Because this cornerstone is, is a stumbling block to some. And everything in God's kingdom rests on what we do with Christ. Let me skip to the last passage, 1 Corinthians 1, if you're able to, Joe. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe, right? Our salvation is on the basis of our belief. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is Foolish in this world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so what's interesting is Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews. He is foolishness to the Greeks. Many reject him because they can't make heads or tails of, of what God was doing in sending his son to die for an evil and wicked people. Right? Like, how, how does that make any sense? But for those who believe, it's the power of God to save us. For those who trust in Christ, it's because of him that we experience God's wisdom, that we're gifted his righteousness, that we find sanctification and redemption from God. It has nothing to do with us, but if we receive the, the gift that he gives, if we receive the kingdom that he grants, we like tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, we can enter into that kingdom. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done us. And he is authority in all of the earth to declare you and I forgiven because of the blood that he shed for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that your ministry, although it baffles many, can be received by the simple. That, Lord, your mercy can be received by the humble that your grace can be gifted to those who are sinners. I thank you, Lord, that you sought us out. You came to seek and save the lost. And that, Lord, if we'd humble ourselves, we can experience this liberty, this freedom, this redemption that you offer us. Lord, our lives may from the outside look simple or foolish to many, but we know that if we build our lives in you, that we will bear fruit in your kingdom. And it is eternally precious to you when we follow and obey the words that you speak. I thank you, Lord, that none of our lives are in vain when we build our lives on you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.